This section will focus upon Shiite apocalyptic and its distinctiveness from Sunni apocalyptic. In the first two sections, we have discussed the overall scenarios of Muslim apocalyptic uh, literature and the ramifications on different apocalyptic movements. And these, of course, include Shiism. Now, Shiism, however, of all manifestations of Islam, is the one that is the most suffused with apocalyptic and needs apocalyptic much more than any other branch of Islam. While we can speak about, about Islamic apocalyptic as being perhaps integral to the religion, it is not really necessary for Sunnism. It appears and it does provide a function, but it is nowhere near as necessary as it is actually for Shiism. In Shiism, the appearance of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, is actually absolutely crucial to the faith as it's uh, presently constituted. The reasons for that are fairly clear once one understands the function of the imam inside history. The imam is basically the communication that, is enable, uh, that, that enables the believer to reach God. Without the imam, the world would collapse. And therefore, there's a necessity for the imam to be in existence. He is the pole He's the, the, the center, the axis of the universe as it's presently constituted. And therefore, his occultation in, seven, in 874 was both a disaster for the Shiite community in the sense that it lost its visible communication with the prophet, with the prophet and with God, but also its greatest manifestation and best thing that possibly could have happened to it because it also ceased the endless process that happened after the death of each imam of the constant splintering off of everyone proclaiming well i'm the i'm the successor to this imam i'm the successor to this imam and then fighting among themselves with the occultation of the uh, of the 12th imam in 874 then the Shiite community, the Twelver, uh, the Ithnashariya Shiites, the Twelver Shiites, could actually coalesce around a same figure who was not in any imminent danger of actually saying anything that would cause the community embarrassment or cause it to splinter or cause any theological factions and so forth. And so the figure of the 12th Imam as an invisible Messiah, who is there but not there, is really one of the most brilliant creations uh, in religious history. Um, let's go back to that actual figure and ask ourselves the reasons why he, his popularity is so great. First of all, he's usually said to be the son of Hassan al-Askari, who's the 11th uh, Imam, and his wife Nargis. Nargis uh, had been a Byzantine slave uh, of Greek ancestry. And so there's, uh, there's already from that a tendency uh, to try and proclaim him to be a, 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 of a universal genealogy. He isn't just Arab. He is Arab and Greek, and some of his ancestors were also Turks and others were uh, Berbers and so forth. So 
he has a wide range of uh, of ethnicities that he can claim some sort of affinity towards. But his most immediate is kind of that marriage between Arab, Muslim, Persian uh, cultures and Greek, Christian, uh, since Nargis is not known to have actually converted to Islam, um, that, uh, that supplies that sort of fusion right there of the classical world. Now, this figure uh, is known to have appeared very suddenly uh, at, the, uh, at the death of the, uh, of the 11th Imam, Hassan al-Askari, and to have proclaimed himself uh, out in the open that he was the successor to his father. Now, that claim was not received initially with acceptance. Uh, several of his uncles proclaimed him uh, to be a liar, uh, or even asked, who on earth are you? Um, but And the youth promptly disappeared. And he's not heard of, again, from a historical point of view, probably the most, the most logical thing to assume was that somebody had him murdered. Um, but from, uh, from a religious point of view, it's uh, the, 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 the ideal that he, was, that he was kept in occultation, that he was afraid for his life, and therefore God uh, concealed him, occulted him, is a brilliant move. Now, the question is, right at that particular point, how would the Shiite community uh, communicate with him in the state of occultation? And what happened initially was as there was four what are known as ambassadors, uh, over the period of the next 70 years, this is what's known as the lesser occultation, when these four ambassadors who supposedly knew where exactly uh, the 12th imam was occulted uh, existed, and they could communicate with him. And so they left large numbers of communications from him that have migrated into the Shiite holy material. Now, after the last of them died... Uh, in uh, 921, uh, there begins the period which is known as the Greater Occultation. Now, that period will only come to an end when the 12th Imam actually ends up revealing himself at the end of the world. And so no one really knows when that is going to happen. But uh, the, uh, the 12th Imam does continue to uh, communicate with his followers in several different ways, and we'll discuss uh, those uh, shortly. Now, coming back to earlier apocalyptic issues, uh, Shiite apocalyptic uh, is different from Sunni apocalyptic. First of all, a great many of the conquest traditions that are mentioned inside the, uh, inside the Sunni apocalyptic traditions don't have any place in Shiism whatsoever. And that's understandable. Shiism considered itself to be a minority uh, belief system within Islam. It had little to do with outer jihad issues. There's very, very little of this sort of political uh, conquering uh, consciousness of the world sort of apocalypse that one finds so strongly in Sunnism. The issues that, and, and there's also very little of the Dajjal Jesus material as well. The issues that really interested the, uh, the Shiite apocalyptist were the issues concerning the Mahdi and his opponent, the Sufiani. 
because uh, just uh, just as uh, as Sunni apocalyptic is very much dominated by couplets. In other words, there's usually pairs uh, that will be opponents: Jesus and the Dajjal, the Mahdi and the Sufyani, and so forth. The uh, uh, Shiite apocalyptic is also dominated by couplets, but they're couplets that are all taken from the Sufyani family. Probably the best-known tradition concerning that is, is that the prophet fought Abu Sufyan, in other words, the ancestor of the Sufyani family. Ali fought Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan, who is the fifth caliph. Hussein, his uh, youngest son, fought Yazid, who is Muawiyah's son. And it is said then the Mahdi will fight then the Sufyani. So there's a pattern of these four couplets that continues throughout age uh, throughout the ages of absolute good versus absolute evil, and you don't find that so much in um, in, in in Sunni traditions. Um, the fact is is that the Mahdi sometimes does stupid things in Sunni traditions, and the uh, the Sufyani is by by no means an absolute evil inside uh, Sunni traditions. You might remember from the previous section that in Sunni traditions, even though the Sufyani is an evil guy, uh, he's able to repent in the end. It actually ends up joining the Mahdi. But in Shiite traditions, the Sufyani is an absolute evil. He's a figure that is, that is completely loathed because he is one of the descendants of that accursed family, the uh, Sufyani family. I can tell you from personal experience when I traveled to Iran, I probably my most uncomfortable moment was when a, a senior ayatollah asked me, what did you write your doctoral dissertation on? Which I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the Sufyani family. <laughs> and, and there was a dead silence when I said that. And he said, so you wrote on the Umayyads, who we hate. And they do. There's no family that is hated more than the Umayyad Sufyani family. So the Sufyani has that aspect of absolute evil that uh, is not characteristic of the Sunni traditions. But probably the most common traditions come from the, uh, the, the desire to identify who exactly is the Mahdi. And this comes from the fact that, uh, that on a repeated basis, Shiites were denied the political power that they felt like they should have been given. Remember that the basis for Shiism is the attitude that Ali bin Abi Talib and the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad's family through his two sons, Hassan and Hussein, have the innate right to rule the Muslim community. They are the ones who, according to Shiism, according to Twelver Shiism, are called Ahalbait, the people of the house. Now, the problem is, is that uh, that term Ahalbait did not become easily definable until well into the early Muslim period. And it took a number of false starts before Muslims were able to localize it, let's say, around the, that, that family, which today we would call the, the family or the immediate family of the prophet. Originally, Ahalbait even apparently included the Umayyads. The Umayyads were closely related to, to the prophet, even though they opposed him during, during his lifetime. 
But it is clear from their writings, those writings that have survived to us, that they actually referred them, uh, to themselves as Ahalabite. But the most dangerous opponents of, this, of the Shiites were the Abbasid family. Now, the Abbasid family were descended from the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad. Equally, the Shiites uh, were descended from Ali, whose father was one of, the, one of the Prophet Muhammad's uncles. Now, the difference was between the two, uh, the two families was that Ali had married the Prophet Muhammad's youngest daughter, Fatima, and was there, therefore also the father of all of his male grandchildren. Abbas did not do that, and none of his descendants married uh, any of the Prophet Muhammad's uh, children. So, but the, uh, the Abbasids ran a very brilliant propaganda machine that was able to present itself as actually the family of the Prophet. And so they used the slogan Ahalbait that they were going to that they were going to bring back the family of the prophet to power in order to win the revolution which happened in 747. And so at the end of that moment then the Shiites basically were left with nothing. From their point of view, the family of the prophet did not include uh, the Abbasids, but they never actually said so. And so it's without a doubt that uh, from that particular time, we find huge numbers of traditions that begin to appear saying the prophet's family includes merely those people that are known as the Ahl Kisa. Ahl Kisa are, uh, goes back to a certain story. Um, that where it said that the Christians of Najran, a town in northern, uh, what is today northern uh, Yemen, came to polemicize with the prophet, and they did a process which was known as the Mubahala. The Mubahala is a mutual cursing, uh, and it involves uh, one placing what is most precious to a given person under the curse. In other words, those, uh, those people that the prophet considered to be the most precious, he placed underneath a kisah, a blanket, a covering. And as it were, he said, uh, he said, if I am wrong, then those people, that's what, that's what I'm gambling. And so those people that he placed under that, under that blanket were Fatima, Ali, Hassan, and Hussein, at least according to tradition. And from the point of view of Shiites, that answers the question about who is the prophet's family. From therefore, uh, from there on, then uh, they, for the most part, did win the propaganda battle. And uh, to this day, most messianic uh, issues will be resolved with relationship to the prophet of Muhammad's blood descendants rather than the family of the Abbasids. But that didn't stop the Abbasids for, uh, from ruling the Muslim world as caliphs, basically, until 1258. Um, however, the uh, Shiites were also uh, riven by other different uh, problems. And that was uh, the problem of Hassan and Hussein. These are the two grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, but they acted towards uh, adversity in a completely different way. Um, after the assassination of Ali in 661, 
Uh, Hassan was elected caliph by his supporters, but he chose to give up the caliphate for a sum of money. Um, and uh, this is uh, this is extremely important because read uh, I'll just read uh, a, a tradition that uh, that is ascribed to uh, Muhammad al Bakr, one of the uh, one of the twelve imams, which says the descendants of Al Hasan claim that the Ka'im, the Mahdi, will be from among them, and that they are the family of the end times. And the, uh, the descendants of Ibn al Hanafiya, another messianic claimant, claim likewise. May God have mercy on my uncle Al-Hassan because he sheathed the swords of 40,000 men when the commander of the faithful, Ali, was killed and handed them over to Muawiyah. In other words, there's very strong feeling from this tradition that uh, Hassan did not behave in a very honorable manner. In other words, he's basically described as a coward here. And it's interesting that he is the only one of the 12 imams who is not succeeded by his own son. The imamate after his, uh, after his death goes to his brother, Al-Hussein. And so that, is, that does not mean that he did not have any children, I might add. He's actually known as the one who got married the most in, uh, in uh, early Islamic literature. He's known as the marrying man. Um, and so he had a lot of children, actually. But the fact was is because his, uh, his conduct was tainted to some extent by that early giving up of the caliphate, uh, he never really fully got free of that, and his descendants also had to live with the, with the stigma that their ancestor had behaved in a less than honorable manner. And that's contrasted with the manner in which al-Hussein acted. Uh, you'll remember from discussing uh, Shiism, that uh, that Al Hussein died nobly at Karbala in 680, together with most of his family and his children, and so he was willing to put his life on the line and actually ended up dying for it. And so each one of the imams uh, after him is usually said to have died, been murdered, and so uh, and so forth, and quite a number of them were held in prison camps. So. There's necessity, actually, at that particular point uh, in the identification of the Mahdi to say which of the two grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad will the Mahdi be descended from. Now, it's very interesting, the fact that obviously Shiites chose uh, the descendants of of Hussein. But uh, after centuries, the conduct of al-Hassan was not seen in such a negative light by uh, by Sunnis. Uh, eventually, the descendants of al-Hassan actually came back to the Sunni fold, uh, where they persist to this very day. The King Abdullah of Jordan, for example, is descended from al-Hassan, and uh, many others who claim uh, descent of, from the Prophet are also, uh, although more dubiously, uh, associated with him. But the interesting thing is, is later Messianic Sunni writers oftentimes say that it's right that the, uh, that the, uh, that the Mahdi come from the descendants of al-Hassan, because what did he do in the end? He brought about peace in the Muslim world. 
He was willing to reconciliate himself with, uh, with Muawiyah. He laid down his pride. He didn't want pe- for people to die. And what else uh, would a messianic figure do? So it's very interesting that the, that the conduct of al-Hassan can be seen in wildly different ways in, uh, throughout the centuries. In the early uh, accounts, he's oftentimes called a coward. Uh, he's made to say things like, I chose humiliation and shame over hellfire, uh, which uh, the word there, are uh, is, is really the lowest, most despicable word that anyone can possibly say about anybody's conduct. And it's difficult to imagine that a descendant of the prophet could ever say something like that about his own conduct, that, that he chose shame, he chose R, uh, which, yeah, I've never seen that in any other uh, literature. At any rate, one finds these sort of materials about al-Hassan, and then later time uh, his conduct is uh, completely different. So the identification of who is the Mahdi is extremely important for, uh, for Shiites. And it goes even further than that, because it's clear that they had to constantly fight against anybody else who could possibly uh, associate the Mahdi with, uh, with another characteristic. In other words, they had to very carefully delineate who exactly he was. They would give complicated physical descriptions of him, uh, that he had a mole on his head, that he sometimes had a hooked nose, he would have uh, reddish hair, uh, he would have various different uh, effects of the eyes. Sometimes he would have a, 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 a growth on his shoulder. Uh, all sorts of different complicated physical descriptions that would uh, enable the viewer to actually know who this guy was. And we do not know whether those physical descriptions were actually taken from real human beings. Eventually, even that wasn't enough. And so it became necessary for, uh, for the Mahdi to be actually identified by God and that uh, an angel would come down personally and pick the, uh, pick the Mahdi out, say, this is the Mahdi, uh, very similarly to the uh, choice of Jesus inside the New Testament. So the function of the 12th Imam is uh, an extremely important one. Uh, the function of the 12th Imam, uh, all Imams have to have relationship to the Shiite community in what's known as Walaya. Walaya is the, is the love or loyalty that one should feel in one's heart, remembering that Shiism oftentimes had the character of something of a secret society uh, in classical Islam, that uh, one should, should swear allegiance, as it were, to the Imam of one's time. You're not truly a believer until you've sworn allegiance to the imam. And so, uh, so it's necessary that there be an imam. The imam has to exist somewhere. In this particular case, uh, existing in occultation. Um, and, so, and, and he's regularly cited as having communications. Uh, I've stated that, uh, that a considerable number of volumes... Uh, from classical times are actually communications uh, to the imam uh, or from the imam. And so that's uh, quite interesting. Now, Shiite messianic scenarios, as they're written inside the books, usually favor the, uh, the Eastern uh, option for the appearance of the Mahdi. 
Um, in other words, that area which today we would call Eastern Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Central Asia, um, those areas uh, would be the area where the, um, where the Mahdi should appear. Um, it's very interesting that, the, that oftentimes uh, there are followers that are listed for the Shiite Mahdi. Now, these followers uh, sometimes can be interesting and sometimes can be problematic. Um, in general, they uh, are taken or from, uh, from historical material and or idealized or sometimes demonized. Um, we find a number of different uh, f- single figures like uh, this figure called Shu'ib bin Saleh, uh, who is usually said to be a, a, a general and who may very well be an idealized form of the, of the great general Abu Muslim, who led the Abbasid armies to their success. Um, but his, uh, his most prominent followers are this group of 313 men and women. So there's uh, usually said that 50 of them are actually women. Um, and this is, the, this is the number of the, uh, the people who fought at the Battle of Badr, um, the first uh, Muslim successful battle in 624, who are usually said to, to be gathered to the Mahdi as swiftly as the clouds move. They will be gathered from their beds. Uh, they will be gather, gathered very suddenly from all over the Muslim world. And uh, several different uh, apocalyptic treatises preserve lists of who exactly these people are where they're to be taken from. It's very interesting that they're taken from all over, uh, from, uh, from the uttermost east, uh, even into Morocco, although not Spain, which uh, at that particular time was a, a stronghold of the Umayyads. So there's uh, this group, and there's oftentimes a secondary groups that will support him uh, that are heroes out of the past. Remember, one of the functions of the Mahdi is uh, that he is to uh, obtain justice. And uh, from a Shiite point of view, the most common focus for justice is justice for Hussein. Now, it's not entirely clear why exactly or how exactly uh, al-Hussein will appear, but he is usually said to, uh, to join the Mahdi. Um, but what is the nature of the justice that will be obtained from uh, his opponents is not entirely clear. Um, but there's a number of different other prominent fighters that are resurrected from the past, uh, usually close supporters of Ali, uh, Hussein himself, uh, Joshua, uh, the believer of the people of Pharaoh, and uh, several of the seven sleepers uh, that are mentioned in Surah 18. Uh, of the Quran. So this group uh, is much different from the sort of groups that are localized around the Mahdi in Sunni literature. In the Sunni literature, oftentimes the Mahdi will gather together troops that are uh, of a plausible military character. In Shiite literature, the, uh, the focus is very much still on the Mahdi. These figures, uh, even those ones that are historical figures out of the deep past, they don't um, actually do much. The Mahdi can do everything. He is a superman. 
He is capable of striking down large numbers of enemy troops. Uh, no problem there. He doesn't really need his 313 followers, but he has them anyway. Um, so it's uh, interesting to you know, to look at these followers and to, to draw some conclusions about what the, the character of the Shiite community was at that particular time. It was basically a secret society. In other words, you didn't know who around you was a Shiite. Anybody could have been a Shiite. You didn't know. You know, they would uh, oftentimes be praying together with the Sunnis and so forth. And that was one of the things that, that caused Sunnis a great deal of fear is that, and, and I think that there are some comparisons to be drawn between, uh, between the manner in which Shiites acted and the way that, uh, that communists or socialists were portrayed back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Is that there was a sense that, uh, that all around you there was the possibility that someone you uh, were acquainted with might be completely different than what you really thought they were. And this fact was very much bolstered by the, uh, by the Shiite doctrine of takia. Takia meaning precautionary dissimulation, the uh, ability to lie uh, in order to protect your faith. Um, but by extension, it largely came to mean lying in any particular case. Uh, lying for uh, the sake of, uh, of Shiism, denying the faith uh, in public, but then uh, affirming it in private. And so the different groups that are melded together under the control of the Mahdi are essentially kind of um, kind of of a secret society nature being drawn from all over the Muslim community and then performing hijra as it were uh, to to the Mahdi and then uh, going forth to victory now the Mahdi doesn't really have any trouble obtaining victory he wins every battle he doesn't have any problem and he kills the Sufiani without any trouble the question is, is what does he do after that? Um, and it's not easy to understand that. Um, it says uh, one of the factors of the, uh, of the Mahdi that, uh, that is uh, most disturbing is his sort of nihilistic destruction. It says, uh, it says when the Mahdi arises, he will enter al-Kufa, Kufa being the major city of southern Iraq, and order the destruction of the four mosques, until their foundations are reached, and make them a booth like the booth of Moses. The mosques will be plain, without any decorations, for, they, for them, like they were during the time of the messenger of God. In other words, uh, the Mahdi uh, will remove any sort of, uh, any sort of monumental uh, mosques or, or, or beautiful buildings, and he will reduce them back down to the sort of, uh, of of plain, rude structures that existed during the time of the prophet. Because, essentially, the world is going to end. And it oftentimes talks, uh, the Shiite traditions oftentimes talk about how the Mahdi will, uh, will kill the religious elites, uh, he will, will harvest off, uh, great numbers of people uh, in vengeance for their inaction during uh, during the previous uh, years. Now, the interesting thing about uh, a, about a Shiite apocalyptic is is that other 
good versus evil aspects are almost entirely lacking. There's virtually nothing in Shiite apocalyptic about Jesus, virtually no mention of the Dajjal. There's virtually no mention of Gog and Magog. All of the focus is really very much upon that Mahdi versus the Sufyani type of, uh, of conflict. Another interesting thing about the, uh, about the Shiite Messianic age is that it is much, much, much longer than it is in the, uh, in the Sunni presentation. Remember from uh, the first section that the Sunni, uh, the Sunni Messianic age can sometimes be extraordinarily short, sometimes only a day, uh, but usually not more than nine years. Uh, when you read about it in the Shiite presentation, it's oftentimes uh, presented that the Mahdi will live out a normal life. He will then uh, have children. They will continue on in a messianic dynasty and, and continue on for centuries. Oftentimes the numbers that are given are two, 300, 400, uh, and even 500 years. And so that aspect of Shiism is much closer to the sort of millennial age that is described uh, as the ideal age uh, inside uh, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> There's very, very little material about outer conquest. Uh, whereas in, uh, in Sunni literature, the, uh, the point of the literature is very much uh, to, to, inc uh, to expand Islam to increase the conquests, to take up, up that, that particular position where the conquests laid off, and to conquer the entire world, and eventually then to affect the conversion of, uh, of, Muslim, of Christians, Jews, and other non-Muslims. Um, there's very little of that mentioned inside the, uh, inside the, the Shiite apocalyptic literature. It's, uh, it's very much focused towards, uh, towards an internal revolution inside the Muslim empire. It's very much focused towards Sunnis. Sunnis are the enemy. Sunnis need to be converted to Shiism. Sunnis need to proclaim their allegiance to the 12th Imam. But there's very little of the sense of, well, Christians need to convert or Jews need to convert and so forth. Um, the capital of the Mahdi is never Jerusalem. Uh, unlike in the uh, Sunni presentation, it's always uh, Kufa in southern, uh, southern Iraq. Um, and so it's not surprising that, that these sort of narratives lead fairly, uh, fairly strongly to the conversion of, a, of, uh, of Iraqis to, to Shiism. Now, it might come as a surprise, given uh, the fact that Shiites in, in Iraq are uh, talked about so often uh, nowadays, to realize that their conversion is really a thing of almost yesterday. Although there were always significant Shiite communities in the area of southern Iraq, the majority of the people in, in southern Iraq were not Shiites, actually, up until the, uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. And really, their conversion was only fully completed uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So, but uh, these uh, these messianic visions of the the importance of southern Iraq were very much a part of that conversion, and uh, apocalyptic uh, visions 
were also a part of the conversion of uh, of Iran as well, that it was affected after the Messianic dynasty of the Safavids took over uh, in the early 1500s and was completed by around 1700. Um, the other apocalyptic manifestations of, a, of, of Shiism have be, uh, been fairly well known. The uh, appearance of the, of the Islamic Revolution in 1978, uh, 79, which corresponded to the Muslim year 1400. The establishment of the Islamic Republic under the leadership of Imam Khomeini. Now, there have been questions that have ra been raised about what exactly was the function of Imam Khomeini, the only person other than one of the actual 12 imams in Shiite history to have ever borne the title of imam. And those questions have never been adequately resolved. Um, some have speculated that uh, Khomeini allowed certain groups to, uh, to, to believe that he was a manifestation of the, uh, of the 12th imam, that he was uh, leading the people into some sort of an idealized state, um, it's not clear to what extent he subscribed to the uh, to the title imam, um, but he certainly tolerated it, and it continues on even to this day when you look at official propaganda coming out of the uh, Islamic Republic. After his death in 1979, uh, the messianic aspect of the Islamic Republic has become much much less until the election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in 2005. With 2005, we definitely find uh, a rise in apocalyptic expectations uh, and a strengthening of sort of the, the, the revolutionary movement side of Iran. Now, this revolutionary movement has several different ramifications. First of all, it, uh, it, it very strongly uh, purports to make sure that the Mahdi is about ready to appear. And the, uh, the, the level of expectation concerning him has been magnified hugely within the Islamic Republic. That can be seen by an upsurge of books and articles on the subject of the Mahdi, and the, uh, the appearance of the rather secretive Mahdaviyat Society, of which uh, Ahmadinejad is a member, that would like to uh, hurry the Mahdi up, for lack of a better word, uh, to, 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 to force the pace of the appearance of the Mahdi, to increase the chances that he will appear. Now, this has several different manifestations uh, from a practical point of view. The first one and most obvious one is the adulation of the, uh, uh, of the mosque at Jamkaran. Uh, Jamkaran is a location very close to the holy town of Qum, uh, where uh, approximately a thousand years ago, uh, a farmer had a vision in which uh, the, uh, the 12th Imam appeared to him and said, this is the location where I am living. And there was a certain well right there where you could communicate with the Mahdi. And so uh, of late, uh, traditionally, there was really only a very small mosque around that, uh, that area. 
Um, but uh, starting really with uh, with the Ahmadinejad uh, government, the uh, the mosque at Jamkaran has been vastly, vastly expanded. Today, it's really one of the largest mosques uh, in that area, even larger than some in Qum. Um, and it, it contains a whole range of uh, of exceptional items that are designed to foster uh, interest in the the appearance of the Mahdi. Books uh, by the sackload are sold there about the appearance of the Mahdi. Um, one can go there and see the personal level of piety that's associated with the expectation that the Mahdi uh, is going to appear, which I did in 2007. Um, and one can go up to the well uh, where the Mahdi can be communicated with and throw various different communications into uh, into it and uh, hopefully get a response. Um, and the interesting thing is, is the, the mosque at, at Jam Quran sells actually a, a number of different um, booklets that uh, that are communications with the uh, with the twelfth Imam. They reveal this this type of piety on a, on a most basic local level. School children writing to the Mahdi with their problems, uh, college age uh, people uh, uh, revealing, you know, their innermost fears and hopes and so forth, and and, and even the, the visions and and trials that uh, that senior ulama will go for uh, will be all collected inside these booklets. And then distributed, and they're 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 just a microcosm of uh, of contemporary piety with regard to the Mahdi. There's also a very strong ecumenical uh, outlook that's being pushed by the by the Mahdaviyat and Ahmadinejad. This is not quite so apparent to uh, to an outsider, especially in the United States, but uh, Ahmadinejad. Uh, and the ulama around him, those that are messianically involved, uh, have very strongly tried to reach out to uh, non-Shiites, uh, to Sunnis, but also to even to Christians, um, and make uh, bridges across uh, across different barriers. Um, the polemic of Ahmadinejad against certain aspects of uh, the United States and most especially against Israel is extremely strong and usually causes a great deal of fear and anger against him. But on the other side, there's also a, a great deal of effort on his part to, uh, to try and speak across divides. And it's clear when you're reading him, even though his vision is one that is unacceptable in my view, uh, but he is making an attempt from his own worldview to actually uh, create sort of a messianic society, a precondition for the Mahdi to appear. Basically what he would like to do, ludicrous though it might sound uh, to an outsider, apparently from his writings and so forth, is that he would like to, to create that, that, uh, that peaceful messianic society as a prelude, as a precondition for the Mahdi to appear. And this is apparent from his, uh, from his, uh, his speeches at the UN, where he oftentimes uh, said that he felt uh, the presence of the Mahdi uh, as he was speaking um, in one of his prominent uh, speeches he, in 2006, um, he said that he was suffused with a green light 
a green light being the green light of, uh, of the Mahdi, um, as he began to talk uh, throughout the General Assembly. It's very often uh, times used these types of, uh, of themes. Another, uh, another fact, uh, and, and probably the most interesting from my point of view, is the change in, uh, in tone that one finds in uh, Shiite apocalyptic literature in, contemporary, uh, in the contemporary time. There's a very strong attempt to try and uh, relate events, current events, to the prophecies that are mentioned inside, uh, inside the literature. We'll detail this more in the next section, uh, especially with regard to Sunnism. But uh, hitherto, this has not been a characteristic that's been associated with Shiism. Shiism has usually uh, simply regurgitated uh, texts and prophecies without uh, uh, trying to refer to them, uh, refer them to uh, to contemporary events. That has changed remarkably with re- uh, with the election of, of Ahmadinejad and the rise of the Mahdaviyat society. Thank you.